Okay, we're back. So you've probably heard the story about the little girl throwing starfish back into the sea. There's a cynical man in the story, and he walks up to her and says, What difference are you making? She responds by looking down at the starfish in her hand and says, For this one, it makes all the difference. For most of my life, I was like the cynical man. I'd roll my eyes at such a story because it feels too simple. What about the root causes that would wash them onto the shore in the first place? And won't the inevitable storms and current of the water just bring them back onto dry land again? Okay, so I wasn't that smart, but cynical? Yes. Anyway, in part one, go back and listen to it if you haven't. You meet Jack and Tony, who were both placed in mental institutions. Their friendship became a beaming light in one of history's darkest times. After learning that Tony's family had abandoned him, Jack develops this fierce sort of compassion for him, teaching him how to talk and telling him not to be afraid. In the end, they get out of the institution, which was Gouverneur Hospital. It was on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And as Jack said in the last episode, he doesn't want to talk about Gouverneur no more. He wants to talk about new things. I'm glad I'm not there no more. I'm glad I'm not there no more. I don't want to think about Gouverneur no more. I want I want to think about new things. Where do they go next? And will they weather the harsh storms and strong currents of a society that's unprepared to welcome them? In this episode, you'll find out. And you'll finally hear the story of how I meet them, and how I meet my wife, and how I changed my mind about the starfish story. You're listening to Belonging Together, a podcast about disability and relationship building. It's an orientation to Do For One's work, guided by stories. And I'm Andrew. I'm the founder and director of Do For One. This is the story of how it all began. The story is told with the help of our friend Jack, who you just heard, my wife, Allie. He doesn't give too much away at first, you know? So, like, it definitely kept me guessing, like, you know, I could tell Tony was extremely perceptive. And in this episode, you'll meet my mom, who shares her perspective. What went on in your head when I first told you that I wanted to move to New York City? Um, I guess, I guess there was some fear. Apprehension, maybe is a better word. World's best mom. Okay, here we go. Part two. So Jack and Tony leave the institution. But before we continue that story, what about the others left at Gouverneur? A budget cut threatened them, saying they'd have to go back to Willowbrook on Staten Island. And the word was going around that People were dying sudden and suspicious deaths back at Willowbrook. Parents and community activists were getting more and more involved. I knew that God was going to permit our kids to go back to Willowbrook. Well, she was right. They didn't go back. But how come? There were vehicles on the way to Gouverneur, ready to pick them up and take them back. Out of desperation, parents were collaborating with anyone who was willing to help. And this led them to working with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. They formed a perimeter around Gouverneur, which prevented the vehicles from taking the residents. A lot of times people give the Black Panthers and the Young Lord not a good rating. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, they prevented us from going back to um, 
uh, to Willowbrook. This is Willie Mae Goodman on local Staten Island TV. She was at the center of activism at this time. She started the Gouverneur Parents Association. They went on radio stations. They got the community involved, doing everything they can to change things. And others followed the same spirit of activism. And public outcry and legal persistence led to the official closing of Gouverneur in March 1981, and Willowbrook officially closed in 1987. So that's like, that's a new that's, lifetime. I mean, that's, I was one years old. You know, that's not one year old. Uh, yeah. I mean, imagine the things that were happening in mainstream while this existed right in the middle of the city, you know? There's like MTV. There's, you know, it's the prime of the 80s. Mental institutions of this magnitude are largely unacceptable to us now. Those who are leading the way forward are trying to learn from history, asking, what were the mistakes that led to these institutions? The best way I think this can be answered concisely is by pointing to two major shifts in the way that people with impairments were perceived. The pioneers of the first mental institutions in the United States first created them for education. This was the first idea behind special ed. They were not designed for permanent residents the way they eventually became. This was around the late 1800s, and there are reports of people being discharged from institutions, becoming self-supporting adults. Some could begin work. Others were able to return to their homes and care for themselves to a mild extent. Unfortunately, these mild successes were perceived as a failure, all because there wasn't a rapid and complete cure. So the predominant view shifted from people in need of special education to innocent victims of fate. To give you a flavor of the time, one delegate from the Charities and Correction National Conference says, they must be kept quietly, safely, away from the world, living like the angels in heaven, neither marrying nor given in marriage. Soon, medical science started to advance, which gave physicians hope that people could be cured. So then people are seen and treated as patients instead of resident or neighbor. People lived in hospitals and psych wards rather than homes, and people who care for them are mostly nurses and doctors. So an object of pity model quickly turned into what's known as the medical model, all of which led to the conditions of places like Willowbrook. As a point of reflection, Samuel Gridley Howe, the man who organized and led the first School for the Blind in the United States, said, Good intentions and kind impulses do not necessarily lead to wise and truly humane measure. Nowhere is wisdom more necessary than in the guidance of charitable impulses. Meaning well is only half our duty. Thinking right is the other and equally important half. For sure. So when you left Gouverneur, where did you go? I went to the Utopia apartment. I was around 3rd Avenue, 94th Street. Here Jack describes what's known as a supported group home. They're first on 93rd Street and 3rd Avenue in Manhattan. Three bedrooms. Mm-hmm. One, one bedroom for me and Tony together. And the other one it used to be uh, uh, Joe Oyo used to be another one. 
He describes in detail his other roommates. Supported group homes are run by government agencies, occupied by several to a, a few roommates with significant disabilities and staffed by, say, two, maybe up to four people at the, at the same time. People who were once behind the four walls of an institution 24-7, never leaving, often never even going outside, are now living in more valued parts of the city where many have support staff whose job it is to provide opportunities for various activities like arts and crafts, work, volunteer work, and so on. I feel different in my life. I feel different in my life. I don't think about gouverneur. I don't think about what I want to do. I don't think about gouverneur. All I think about is what I want to do. I said I want to go out more. I said I want to do what I want to do. New forms of service offer the ability to set and achieve people's goals and find a sense of belonging in valued parts of society. That's the idea in theory, anyway. But there's a lot that we're up against in our efforts to achieve this type of support for people. The funding that's needed for programs. The years of waiting lists for people to receive these services. Finding and keeping good staff. A society that's ready and willing to welcome people into their lives is another story. But still, there are services available now that the institutional days couldn't dream of. And here we have Jack and Tony doing what they can do to navigate this new reality. So Jack talks to his family about getting him a support worker. So what happened was my brother and sister, I said, I want, I want to change. So we talk about it with my family, I said, Typically a part-time support staff that allows for people like Jack and Tony to engage in their neighborhood, such as visiting museums or pursuing hobbies like learning an instrument. Most people were going to group dayhab programs, something that Jack and Tony didn't want for a variety of understandable reasons, and reasons I won't get into here since we've got a lot to cover in this story. Jack is all the while looking out for Tony as well. Here, Jack is talking about a support staff working with Tony. Apparently, it wasn't working out so well. I said, I said, you know what? You're young and crazy. You're young and crazy. I said, give me another support worker. I said, give me another support worker. I said, Tony don't want, I said, Tony don't want me bothered with that. Tony doesn't want to be bothered like that. Yeah. Tony wants somebody that's calm Tony wants somebody to not go off on him. To not go off on him? Yeah. Yeah. Jack then describes Tony trying out more and more support workers, stating that Tony would jump out of his chair as he'd do when he got angry. Yeah. yeah. He'd jump out of his chair and had Tony yelling at the support worker. I said, Tony, what are you yelling at him for? Tony, what are you yelling at him for? He wanted somebody else instead of him. He wants somebody else instead of him. Meanwhile, I've lived in New York for two years, and this is around 2005. I asked my mom what she thought I'd be doing instead. Did you think I would stay in New York for as long as I have? Um, probably not. Yeah. But I don't know that I really had expectations of what that would look like. Mm-hmm. I just thought it's hard. It was hard. You need to do hard. this. I maybe I thought that you would be on the road traveling around or yeah. doing something like that yeah. with guess, the band or mu- doing music somehow. 
Nope, wasn't doing that. I stumbled upon the opportunity to work for an organization that helps people with disabilities make choices about their lives and connect to their community. I became a support worker. When I first met Tony, it was on 27th Street. And I remember he was in his bed watching the... On uh, 2nd Avenue. On 2nd Avenue. Yeah. 2nd Avenue and 27th Street. Yeah. And I remember... I don't know if you remember this, because I know you were in the room sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. He didn't talk much at first. Yeah. When I first met him, I was excited. A little anxious. You know, it was my new job. I was ready to make a difference. And I was ready to make some money, hoping I could pay rent. Don't pursue this kind of job if you're looking for money. He greeted me, but with little eye contact and a hesitant grin. He had strong facial features, and he was slow to speak, and that added a lot of depth and intensity to every word and expression. His right arm swung around to clasp his wheelchair that was parked next to his bed. He seemed more concerned about his CDs and magazines and batteries laying on his bed than meeting me. I was pretty insecure. All I wanted to know was that he liked me. <laughs> I was trying to impress him. And my supervisor, who was standing over my shoulder. But it wasn't until later that I learned how his family had abandoned him. How often he had been moved around from place to place. Where he'd lose his belongings along the way and how many well-meaning people had come in and gone out of his life before me. I learned I needed to be patient, especially when he speaks, so that he could express himself. Travel somewhere? Yeah. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. He wanted to go out. He didn't like to be in the house. He didn't like being in the house. He didn't want to be in with his staff. He wanted to go on everywhere. He wanted his brother to come get him and uh he never come back, period. He wanted his brother to come visit him, but he never came back, period. I realized that he was very smart. His emotional intelligence far exceeded his ability to communicate with words. And this insight really pushed a button with Jack. And I feel like... I feel like a part of his frustration, and Jack, you would know more than I would about this, but I feel like... A part of what made him angry is that he was very smart. Yes, he is. I get out of frustration too, you know? Uh, when, uh, I get a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of, um, um, um. Stop saying I'm not smart. Don't think I'm not smart. I am smart. I really know what's going on without seeing Without seeing, what I hear. I know what's going on without seeing. Without seeing, I hear. I've been listening to conversations a lot. I had to know what's going on in the, what's going on in the life. You gotta know what's going on in my life. I wanna know what's going on in your life. You gotta know what's going on in my life. 
and very easy to talk and very smart to talk and don't let me down. I won't let you down and this is the way I feel, that's the way I want to do. It's important for people to understand that. I want people to understand. So clearly that's important. And we'll address the importance of setting higher expectations for people with disabilities in future episodes. Before I worked with Tony, the furthest he'd go is sitting just outside his door of his apartment, watching people go about their business day to day. It took me a while to figure out what to do with our time together. There was a lot of awkward moments. No talking, no activity. I had to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That is, until we discovered Borders Bookstore on 31st Street and 2nd Avenue. Although this is just a, a few blocks away from his house, to him it felt like a remote location. We'd listen to Hannah Montana songs, grab wrestling magazines, or something about science, and we talked about them later at uh, Dean and DeLuca Cafe. Despite his questionable taste in pop culture, Tony was anything but superficial. He demanded authenticity. He knew that the system was only there because it had to be, and he very much knew the difference between paid staff and someone who loved him and wanted to be with him. Tony would often vent about this when I was with him. I'd often leave feeling exhausted from our times together and frustrated that I couldn't seem to please him. I wanted to be the one to save him, but in his view, I was just another support worker. I'd be out the door as soon as the next one came in. Tony's not the only one frustrated about the system. It's not easy, um... And I always say this, it's not easy, even now, to relax knowing that somebody else is taking care of your child. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Although we fought and we try to fight, we fought for better things, but it's not better, it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the only thing that's really happening is that we in small Willowbrooks, not in a big ground wherever, and the children... Room may look a little different. They got a television. They got a, uh, a little radio. But I think what the system did, moved us into the community, but brought the ideas into the house. So the ideas haven't changed. You know what I mean? They're still mm -hmm. institutional thinking. For me, it became clear my role is limited. Tony wanted people, not programs. He wanted love, and systems can't provide that. I felt so strongly that there was an invitation for me to become a support to Tony, 
outside of my official paid role. My mom weighs in on her perspective. Like you had purpose, mm-hmm. like um, fulfilled in doing what you were doing. Um, mm-hmm. I know that your relationship with Tony was a real significant thing and, and it impacted you a, a lot. It mm-hmm. impacted all of us because mm-hmm. I feel like we just kind of took that on with you. Yeah. Even though there was a lot of miles between us. Yeah. It's hard to explain. I experienced this love that it could have only come from God. My family became his family. I feel like the first time I met Tony, there was just a special connection, just a like a warm like he belongs, he belongs a part of our family and a part of who we are. And yeah, I wish yeah. we could have been more apart. Yeah. But yeah. But time and distance kept that. Yeah. Well, I think I think any time that you would visit New York, as long as I knew him, in some one way or another, you would see him. We would see him. Yeah. Because that was one of the things that I think inspired me toward toward um, starting Do For One was realizing how in in light of Tony's experiences with his family and not having mm-hmm. access to his family, mm-hmm. but then in being in touch with him, how easy it is mm-hmm. to provide a sense of family for him. Um, just simply by inviting my family to be, to be with him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he was fascinated with... Um, anybody who was closely related to me or anybody who was closely related to anybody because it was just like, that's your mom? Yeah. That's your sister? You know, like, uh-huh. um, and it, and it helped me to appreciate those things too more. Yeah. Because I, I was seeing it through his eyes. My home church became his home church, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. He'd say it was very powerful. I feel like I can jump out of my chair. My friends became his friends. He taught me that life is worth celebrating. We wouldn't miss celebrating his birthday and other people's birthdays. We'd go to his favorite restaurant, Planet Hollywood. Meanwhile, Jack and his family are still fighting for every new service available. Jack landed the opportunity to move to his own apartment and move away from Tony. Was Jack to take this opportunity? Jack's sister explained to me that people who knew Tony and Jack as roommates tend to romanticize their relationship. But their relationship got really tense. And it's true. I witnessed this as well. They lived in close quarters all their life, bed to bed, side by side. They'd often fight over the volume of Tony's TV shows versus Jack's radio shows and things like that. Well, when Jack's family approached him about a decision to move away from Tony, Jack's sister, over the phone with me, quotes Jack, word for word, his response. Tony's got nobody. If he doesn't come with me, where is he going to go? Tony and Jack eventually moved together from 27th Street to 42nd Street. Tony was in his late 50s. It was the first place where he had his own bedroom, and it was the last place he'd ever live. 
If it wasn't for Jack and his family, this wouldn't have been possible. This is the type of loyalty Jack modeled, and this is the type of loyalty that inspired me. And another inspiration to me is my mom, who cares for her neighbor, who just turned 100 years old. I, I don't know, I just care about her. Um, I see just the fact that she doesn't really have family left anymore, you know, kind of caused me to just kind of adopt her into my family and mm -hmm. kind of take care of her. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to watch my mom grow old, so it's kind of, it's kind of replaced a little bit of that, yeah. you know, aging process, watching somebody grow old. Yeah. And caring for him. Yeah, yeah. As I reflected on how powerful that is, that my mom would find a sense of honor and identification with her neighbor as an honorary mother of sorts, I got to thinking about how I never had any younger siblings. Or I never had anyone to take care of, besides my cats. I might not be able to take his disability away. I might not be able to give him all the money in the world to live where he wants and to travel to Disney World as much as he wanted to and all that kind of stuff, but... Or get him to marry Tyra Banks. Or get him to marry Tyra <laughs> Banks. But what I could give him, and when I gave what I could give him, um, I saw that that was healing for him. And I think that, you know, I think that changed me as well. Tony had moments where light broke through, where he knew people were looking out for him. And I'm sure that from his perspective, it came from such unexpected places. It was hard for him to believe it and accept that people cared. But eventually he came around. Here's a clip of Tony taking a phone call from a friend. She's helping you out. Is making things helpful. I know. If you had like that, I wouldn't do it. You want to answer it? It's Liz. Oh, boy. Huh? <laughs> Why that good question? Open. You want to answer it? Yeah. Little did I know, I was about to get another lesson in life on love. In 2011, I meet my wife. Not long into our dating relationship, she meets Tony. He doesn't give too much away at first, you know? So, it, like, it definitely kept me guessing, like, you know, I could tell Tony was extremely perceptive. Um, I, I knew that he meant a great deal to you. And I could tell that he was, like, pretty wise and was a no-nonsense kind of guy, um, not really going to put up with fluff. And so, you know, um, I know I can be bubbly and <laughs> just, you know, with my demeanor, I was just like, oh, my gosh. You know, I think I was just praying and hoping, like, I hope Tony likes me. But then I, I realized that, you know, more, more importantly, like, I just liked him. You know, he really made me laugh, and he just had this ability to like bring things down to earth or something and just kind of like, I don't know, just his little like side comments or just kind of side laughs and stuff like sure. 
sometimes he would laugh or kind of comment what I was thinking, but nobody was saying <laughs> about the situation, you know? And, and a year and a half later, I proposed. Come on, pretty girl. The love of my life. To the top of the world. To the joy of our love. Allie and I learned that marriage and forming a family was a gift that wasn't just for us, but it was a gift that could be shared to the benefit of Tony who longed for a sense of family. A larger scale example, but like when you were, you know, talking about like the people that worked in a hospital, like one person for 50 people, you know, it's kind of like it's two people for one person, you know, so it's like more care. There's, um, each person can carry um, just more of, more of the responsibility. So it doesn't turn into something that's stressful. If there's a lot of needs in, that a person has, like it, it could become taxing on one person, and then the joy, you know, can could be taken from that. You know, I had no idea, like going into marriage, how um, kind of a desire to like hoard our time and our resources and just even our relationship, like to us. But I think that honestly, the times that we have stretched ourselves, I see so much fruit that comes from it. And it has strengthened us, I think, in a way that like, it really just can't ever be undone. And that's, it's a gift. Tony attended our wedding, and it's my understanding that this was the second and last time he'd ever travel outside of New York, and his first and only wedding he'd ever attended. Tony got a job around this time, too. Innovative programs like the one I worked at help people find paid jobs for people with disabilities. Again, this is something that institutional days could never dream of. Where did Tony work? None other than his favorite place to eat. Planet Hollywood, the best food in town. Jack went to Tony's birthday party and got to see where he worked for the first time. Well, I went to the party the first time. I said, this is John John, you work here? You work here? Said, yeah. Said, that was a lot of food. Tony ordered meatballs, spaghetti. Ordered meatballs, spaghetti. And all the potatoes. Potatoes. We got a different kind of food. Right? And then after that, we had um, cake and ice cream. Cake, ice cream. We had uh, a coconut soda. Soda. You know? So we, we had to we listen to music and all that. Listen to music and all that. But soon after Tony got this job, Planet Hollywood had to make some renovations, and so he got laid off. So he couldn't go back to job. He couldn't do anything. So Tony was disappointed. He wanted to keep his mind occupied, as he'd say. He'd continue to go out with a support worker, exploring the community, but he was really fixated on going back to work. I would call him every once in a while. We would go out to eat. We would celebrate holidays and other occasions. This was around the first year of my marriage, and I regrettably just didn't see him as much as I wish I had. And then? Something changed in his body. 
Something changed in his body. I started to have pain. He started to have pain. I got pain in his chest. He started to have pain in his chest. His heart stopped. His heart stopped. So Jack calls his brother. I called my brother. I said, I said, come on, Ted, let's go in there. Tony, going to die. I said, let's go right now. I want to see the boy go. And then my brother, come over there. So they make arrangements to go to the hospital. We were all there. This was an intense moment for me, seeing Tony hooked up to machines, his eyes closed. I knew how deeply he felt things, especially the times when he knew he should not be alone. I just said simple things like, hey, Tony, I'm here. I just wanted to know that he wasn't alone. I then started to text all his friends he had made over the years. I texted one of his favorites, Laura, who's a chaplain. I received a message back from her right away. She said, I'm on duty and I'm in the same hospital. I'll be right there. Now, what are the odds of that? It was so comforting to know that in the midst of all that was going on, it seemed as though it was being divinely orchestrated so that Tony was not alone. The following day, Tony dies. And by then, there must have been more than 10 of us in the waiting room. Some former colleagues, others from his residence, friends from church, Jack, Allie, me. We were all gathered in a circle around his bed where his body lies. Not knowing exactly what to do, some of us bow our heads and start to pray. One by one, people take moments to go near his body and leave. Uh, it is so complicated for Tony. And uh, for, my, for my mind, I understand it. He wants something more. He wanted something more. Tony would often say, I wish I could go home, but I can't. He said, he wouldn't go home. His family left him. You hated Tony's feelings. Tony don't like the way you do that. I know his brother never come back. When he'd say, I wish I could go home, but I can't, I always took this as some theological statement uh, for the feeling that we all have when we face our darkest moments. But as Jack states... He wanted a girlfriend. He wanted, he wanted a girlfriend, and he don't have a girlfriend. Like I said, the same thing. Then, as I was interviewing Jack, he leans in, and you hear his wheelchair because he's leaning in with intensity. He says, he's in a better place now, man, and I'm happy anyways. Yeah. But I'm happy in a better place I mean, I'm happy anyway.
At his funeral, it was standing room only, full of people from every conceivable background. Former and current staff, former and current roommates, friends from church, all of us who had been deeply impacted by his life. And the story continues to inspire us today. Years have gone by since his death, and I'm starting to wonder if perhaps he had far more to give me than I to him. My mom recounts a conversation she'd have with him often. Just how as a mom, I I couldn't be there and keep an eye on you, and so I was kind of turning that some of that responsibility over to him so that he could just make sure that you do okay, that you behave, and you know, not um, just kind of be, give him a purpose of caring for you, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, rather than it always being you caring for him, that he had he had a spot in my heart that he could care for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember you described his look, and I know this look really well. I mean, I wasn't there for this conversation, but the look of like, yeah. kind of um, when he when he takes something deeply to heart, he'll his chin will kind of go into his chest. Yeah. And his eyes will close for a little, a kind of a long, slow motion blink. Yeah. Kind of a thing, and that's. Yeah, that's the look. That's yeah. That, that when you said, I could tell he took that seriously. That's the look that I pictured him taking. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, I probably nobody asked him ever asked him to do anything with responsibility like that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Like that. That you. I could do that. You might say I turned my back on the cynical man at the beach, and I knelt down to join the little girl throwing starfish back into the sea, one by one. It's not at all to say that systematic issues don't matter. It's just to say that there's no better way to learn about the root causes than to stay close with the real lives that experience injustice. There's simply no replacing personal relationships. And I hope you get it. It's not that I did so much. There's a lot more that I could have done. All I really did was offered my common sense and neighborliness to a really complicated situation. You might be listening and thinking of someone you know. A grandmother, a neighbor, or perhaps a lonely person at church or work that no one talks to. And if you don't know someone, we can help with that. Tony didn't want transactional relationships. He wanted family. Tony never settled for the institutional life he was forced into and told that this is just the way it is for people like you. He never stopped searching for something more. When Tony was excited about something, we all were. He taught me to face the reality that even the most innovative of programs and ideas... If done without love, accompanied by genuine relationships, nothing will work. And Tony longed for home, and in doing so, he points us to a distant country, not of this world, where there is no more depression, no more disability, no more institutions. I said at Tony's funeral, maybe we'll now enter a new season of life, another chapter, where we're all more compassionate, quick to listen and slow to assume. 
celebrating more and cherishing every moment, slowing down our ambitions, and facing every new challenge, not by buying into superficial, quick and easy answers, but facing them with courage and hope. It's out of the overflow of all that Tony and Jack inspired that Do For One came to be. We'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly, andrew at doforone.org. I'd like to send me an email. But also, please take the time to write and thank Jack. What you think about what I say? I highly feel. His email is johncallahan54 at gmail.com. We'll leave those emails available wherever you're listening. In the next episodes... When I first went to general education, I don't know how those other kids, which are all general ed kids, would behave to me. You'll hear more stories from the Do For One community as we explore the question, what is stopping us from building relationships across social barriers, and how can we overcome them? Yeah, so there were two old-time trains. The Red Birds from the 60s and the Silver Bullets from the 80s. Talk to you soon. In New York City, we are surrounded with ambitious, hardworking, fascinating people. The city's cultural aspirations make it one of the most exciting places in the world to live. It can also be one of the loneliest and most challenging. Where power and beauty are valued, those who cannot readily provide them go overlooked. Among the most marginalized are people with disabilities. In New York City alone, there are over 900,000 people with some kind of disability. Negative perceptions, segregation, loneliness, and neglect are common experiences for many. I think before even thinking about ramps and elevators, I think just an openness to invite a person with a disability somewhere, I think that speaks accessibility in greater volumes than having a ramp legally somewhere just for the sake of it. You know, because we can have a ramp or an elevator, but if there's never anyone to use it, then there's really no point. Do For One promotes stronger communities and richer lives by bringing people excluded from freely given support into healthy and lasting relationships. Friendship, spokesmanship, social support, and social change can emerge when people's gifts and concerns are brought into the center of community life. Visit doforone.org to learn more. And I would bang the same rhythm how how the train would pass by like this.